Welcome to the Translate Your Doctor podcast. I'm your host, Patrick Figures, joined today with my co-host, Dr. Trey Sertish. Trey, let's just jump right in for the folks listening. Something that you and I have talked about a lot with my background being in, in healthcare administration, your background being a practicing physician, is all the various things that is that are wrong with healthcare. Something we filled hours and hours talking about. But what we figured out in that discussion is it's really easy to find articles. It's really easy to find people talking about these macro challenges in the United States healthcare system from the trillions of dollars that we're spending and from perverse incentives and the challenges with insurance companies and all these different things that make the American system really difficult for the average patient. But we don't spend a lot of time talking about, and there's not even great material out there, I think, around what we're seeing at the bedside, what the challenges are for the average physician working with the average patient. And I don't think that a lot of individual patients, people in my family, people in your family, are able to articulate why the average patient just doesn't have a great healthcare experience. What is wrong with healthcare? <laughs> Yeah. A huge, a, a huge <laughs> question, right? But yeah. what are the things that you're seeing? What are the problems? What are the challenges? Sure. Yeah, I mean, boiling it down, distilling it down, it's a successful healthcare system. It's just one that facilitates the relationship between provider, whether that's a physician, a nurse practitioner, a physician's assistant, or nurse, and patient. That's it. That's what the healthcare system should do, facilitate that. And that can be financial, that can be logistical, that can be literal space in terms of like thinking about an office, all these things, access to healthcare. And so I feel that the problem with our system, the problem for patients, as well as for physicians, is it feels like that facilitation is not smooth, is not, I'm not going to go so far as to say beneficial for the patient or the physician, but it really makes you work for it. And I think that anyone feels that way, no matter their insurance coverage, no matter what healthcare system they work for, if we're talking about a physician, is that it feels like you're grinding against an uphill system as, as opposed to just kind of jogging downhill towards that goal, which is to have that relationship with your patient and vice versa with your doctor from the patient's perspective. I'm not sure if that's making sense or resonating. Yeah, absolutely it does. I, and and something that I think is is tricky even in that, and this is something I've, I've never asked you explicitly before, how many physicians, so you're an inpatient practicing mm -hmm. doctor, so you see patients mm -hmm. that are admitted into the hospital and you practice hospitalist type medicine. I know it's more complicated than, than that at the academic medical center that you work at. How many physicians is someone that, that you're seeing at the bedside going to have as, as their physician? Is it, is it two, is it 10? How, how many will they be working with? And I mean, you can see me over the video that I'm somewhat smiling, but I, I, I think it's because the answer is somewhat twofold in the sense that how many physicians will they have a number, you know, if you are coming in with even one or two main problems that landed in the hospital, you're likely to see a physician in the emergency department who decides to admit you. If you didn't already come from your doctor's office, if you do indeed have a doctor, so that could have been the first physician, the second physician in the emergency department, the third physician who is the internist or hospitalist who's admitting you into the hospital, 
If that's overnight, their partner in the morning who takes handoff and sees you, the various specialists that may or may not be consulted for you. So if there are two problems, perhaps that's two additional physicians. And depending on how long you're in the hospital, you may see other partners within the hospital medicine division. And so that can be, if you're counting, you know, nearly 10 physicians in a brief period of time. Now I say twofold, and I smile somewhat because how many are your physician? That's, I think, one of the biggest problems is that although we are getting very good as a system to moving patients through a hospital and the system as it stands, I think one of the things we sacrifice is those are those relationships, meaning so, that, yeah. So with, within the existing system, who who is supposed to take responsibility? <laughs> so for, for my mom, for your mom, we have loved ones that have these chronic conditions. My understanding is you have a primary care physician, your physician that is in, outside the hospital setting that looks after you. But when you're when you're most in need, which is when you're admitted into a hospital, it's not always clear to me like who is who's taking responsibility for that relationship on the inpatient side. It, it, should every physician be leaning in? How should that be working, and how does it work? Yeah, absolutely. And what you're describing from the physician standpoint, and patients may hear this, and again, this is getting to a little bit of what our project's meant to do with translating your doctor. The translation here is you're describing responsibility, kind of quarterbacking the care for the patient. And from the doctor side, it's called you know, being primary. You know, that's what that is, is that are you primary for your patient? You'll hear that, oh, the primary team who's doing this. And so to answer your question, it's the primary team, which is generally speaking, the hospitalist who's caring for and has admitted the patient for on behalf of either the emergency department or the primary care physician or a number of subspecialists who say see a patient in the cardiology clinic and decide this patient needs to be directly admitted to the hospital. And so that is the brief answer is that it's generally speaking, the hospital is increasingly so, although traditionally it was your primary care doctor who had responsibilities on the outpatient side in the clinic, and then subsequently saw his or her patients on the inpatient side in the hospital on rounds after clinic. And, and when did that really switch over? You, you and I joke about Marcus Welby medicine, sort of our parents or grandparents mm -hmm. generation show about a a physician that makes house calls and a physician that's going to see you in the hospital, mm -hmm. those days are gone, right? Largely? I would say it depends where you live. You know, I trained in Colorado and am from San Antonio and then went to medical school going a bit out of order in West Texas. And in a large metropolis such as Dallas, where we live now, or San Antonio, where I'm from, those patients have ready access to large healthcare systems that essentially have every subspecialty you would ever want. But if you go into rural parts of the country, the mountainous region of the Mountain West, rural West Texas, and so on, there are still primary care doctors who admit to the hospital, follow their patients. They can be family medicine trained. They can be internal medicine trained. And they really do take responsibility for the entire breadth of the patient experience. I will say, just like you're intimating, that that is rare and increasingly rare nowadays. And that is comes with its own challenges, obviously. But historically, that that really began to start in the 70s and 80s as hospital medicine became an actual subspecialty. And then as hospital medicine has become increasingly prevalent and 
widely distributed across the country into the 90s, the 2000s, and then now that system they're separating the inpatient and outpatient side. So is this where you're starting to see gaps? You know, you, you and I've started this mm-hmm. business together, this mm-hmm. service to mm-hmm. translate your doctor. We've, we've articulated that we, we feel like we're, we're bridging gaps that exist. Mm-hmm. How would you articulate these gaps? I mean, is, is this where these sort of gaps start to form that if you're, if you're a sick, you know, 65 plus patient in downtown Dallas, you're going to be working with 15 different providers potentially across outpatient, across inpatient, and in in the handoff between all these different providers, I assume that's where these gaps start to exist because there's there's just there's loss of inf- there's inefficient information transfer. I assume mm-hmm. whenever a new physician is coming on board and trying to get whatever you would consider the relevant info on a particular patient, that that's just an imperfect handoff, largely coming mm-hmm. from the fact that. A hundred years ago, it was one or two physicians, not as well-trained, I assume, as the physicians that have years, decades of training now, but all that training only gets you so far if, if you can't be brought up to speed on what's happening with the with the patient. How would you articulate all that? Mm-hmm. Yeah, absolutely. Handoffs, definitely a problem. Definitely a problem, and it's something that we speak about a lot on the medical education side and how do you train physicians to live in a world of handoffs because it is necessary. I, I, I think that if in a perfect world, you could have your physician take care of you from A to Z and handle all problems in between, I think that yes, that would perhaps be more ideal because we know that increasing handoffs, which just means that one physician telling another physician about that patient's problems and that can be subspecialist or consultant telling another one of their partners about the patient's problem, or it could be a primary, right? We're talking about these the primary team like we were discussing. That can be in the hospital with the hospitalist, or that can be out of the hospital with your primary care doctor. Those Every time there's a handoff, just like a game of telephone, you can lose things. And in a game of telephone, it's funny and it's not a big deal that you don't get the same sentence at the end that you did at the beginning. But in the reality of healthcare system, it's not as much funny as it can be at worst tragic, but at best disorganized and make like you're describing the patient feel fragmented in their care. So handoffs are definitely a problem with that. But I would also advocate that because medicine has become so specialized, doctors want to handle their problem. And I think there are many incentives that go into that, that, you know, it's very challenging to handle many, many things, because I think the personalities that medicine attracts, in addition to being caring, is also being an expert, is really wanting to understand and master a subject. And if medical knowledge is exponentially increasing year to year, really only recently, we're talking about just decades of time in human history that this has happened. That has put a strain on this healthcare system not to be fragmented, right? It just can't help but be fragmented. So we have two problems. We've got fragmentation of the healthcare system as medical knowledge becomes you know, almost infinite. And then we have the necessary handoffs that occur because one physician can't be there for every patient at every waking hour. And you need to rely on teams and partners and colleagues to make the system work and deliver care. 
So what's the best case scenario then? If, if you, by nature, by the nature of our healthcare system, its evolution, an extension of the wonderful parts of the American healthcare system, which is that we, we have the reputation of being the most sophisticated, mm-hmm. having the best education system. But the shadow of that is that it's increasing fragmentation because you have these silos developing. Your job on the inpatient side is to, I guess, synthesize a lot of this. And, and is quarterback maybe the right term for kind of what you're doing mm-hmm. when you're taking care of a patient, helping quarterback some of that? What's the... What's the best outcome? Like, what's the best state that you could hope for if, if you're a patient coming in and you've got 10 different physicians? What does good look like? If I really think about it, and I want to be purposeful with what terms we use, advocate is what I would okay. say. And, and, and the reason why I, I say that is, in my experience, taking care of a patient primarily in the hospital, a lot of it is thinking about and managing their problems knowing when to ask for help and who to ask, but then managing those relationships because so much of medicine, just like the rest of life is just managing relationships. How are you going to get the mechanic to give you a good deal on fixing your car and really trust that that problem actually exists and needs to be fixed? I mean, not to simplify patient care to uh, mechanics because the difference between the two, right, is that we built the car, we designed the car, we know exactly what goes into that. That is not the case with the human body is that we know a lot of things about it, but there are many things that are mysterious and that mystery and complexity that doesn't exist in say cars and other mechanics, that that can't mean that there's a manual that just literally tells you the all of the answers. Despite that, there is this sense of, uncertainty because you have this transaction of, I don't know what's going on, but I need my car and I need help, but you still need an advocate, right? You still need somebody. And most people use Google or, or online reviews nowadays, right? To tell you like, this is the place to trust. Or you ask your dad, like, well, we always went down the street to this place because they give us a good deal. That's an advocate, right? And I'm oversimplifying a complex physician patient relationship, but that's how I think about it, which is how do I advocate for my patients to get what they need and perhaps what they don't? Because again, the problem with subspecialty medicine, the problem with not being a primary team member is that if you're called and you are told that there's a problem with the heart or the lungs or the guts or the kidneys, then you're going to view it through the frame of, well, it has to be a solution that involves doing something to the heart, the lungs, the guts, or the kidneys, respectively. And that is not always the case as we learn from patients getting too much treatment, too many tests, and therefore are subject to errors and harm because of it. And my understanding is a big part of this advocacy that you're mm-hmm. talking about, which which I, I like as a way to think about what the primary care physician does on the outpatient side mm-hmm. and then what the internist does on the inpatient side, mm-hmm. it, it's advocating for the patient to better advocate for themselves to some extent because so much of how I think about what makes you a, a, a top-tier physician, what makes the great outpatient physicians that I've worked with top-tier physicians is their ability to teach and educate the patient because the best advocate for the patient is the patient, I assume, because the only common thread between all of these healthcare interactions is the patient's ability to be there and advocate 
for themselves. And that I, I think that's often where our healthcare system fails is there's so much happening and it's so complicated and so confusing that the patient loses the ability to advocate for themselves. It's part of what makes leaving a loved one in the hospital so scary is, gosh, I really feel like I need to be there with my mother, with my grandmother, because I'm not sure she can advocate for herself. And I'm not, I, I don't know, I don't have confidence that someone is taking the responsibility to advocate. And that's something that I think you've often taken very seriously is that advocate role and part of that advocation being, being education. Is, am I getting that right? No, you are. And I think, again, we're going to hit on so many questions that just lead to answers because I am, I do want to get back to your original question is what does good look like? But it does speak to this, which is, you know, advocacy, I think, is good, not only from the patient perspective, but also from the physician perspective. And it doesn't just have to be, again, the primary who's doing this. In fact, I would and I strongly encourage and educate our resident physicians and increasingly our medical students who are going to become physicians that you really need to think about and take seriously the charge of being that advocate and being that primary, even if you choose to be, you know, again, we joke the subspecialists of the left pinky, you know, just because you take care of a very narrow part of the body in jest doesn't mean that you can't think about that relationship and take it very seriously as someone who is literally caring for everything in the body. And again, advocating for those things. My, my point is, I hope is that advocacy is important, but it's not just on the shoulders of a of hospital medicine or of primary care that I think that that's a broken narrative. And I think that actually diminishes the happiness and satisfaction that many physicians get with their patients and vice versa. The challenge there seems to be that in a perfect world, everyone would do an excellent job of advocating for the physician, but we, right. we live in a highly imperfect world. <laughs> and so I think the the challenge many of us are left with, mm -hmm. if we sincerely want to change the healthcare system and change how the healthcare system impacts the average mm -hmm. patient, especially patients that are suffering, patients that have not had success, is that we can go to bed at night, pray and hope for just a better world to present itself, or we can attack these problems at these specific points where we think we can make the best impact. And and for me, I think that's where you and I started discussing the thesis for Translate Your Doctor. And, and the, the term Translate Your Doctor, mm -hmm. that moniker, really came from you. And I'm curious, how do you try to explain what Translate Your Doctor is about and what you feel like we're trying to accomplish with this project, for lack of a better term? I would say there's two things. Number one, it came from a, like a very simple observation I was having that is a common struggle for most learners, even many attending physicians. And attending, we just mean, you know, you've completed your training, you are in independent practice, and you're seeing patients. What most people think of when they think of their doctor is their attending physician. And so I still see it amongst them. And I think that many patients, I hope, who listen to this uh, and reflect on their interactions with physicians is like, yeah, I, I remember hearing all these $50,000 words and I don't know what they mean and I don't know how to interpret what to do. And that's not to demean patients and their ability to understand, but it's just that what is the point of communication if you can't understand literally what the other party is saying. And that goes both ways. And that's why it speaks to the advocacy element that you're describing for, from the patient perspective, which is physicians may use the perfect kind of jargonless terminology, right? That patients can hear or at least listen to, I should say, 
everything that the, the physician is saying and, and understand that what's being said. However, if the physician has not heard the patient and because the patient's not advocating for themselves, doesn't know why they want to be healthy or what health looks like to them, then there's going to be a breakdown in communication. And so it began translate your doctor in terms of translating the literal jargon, right? That the physicians overuse very often such that patients can't even understand, but it's evolved into something more than that, which is if patients do want success and that success is to be healthy. And that may not be for every patient. I see plenty of people whose definition of health is very different than what most physicians and perhaps most people would consider to be true. And so, but you're only going to know that if you translate what your patient is saying and what your physician is saying in a way that both parties can, again, facilitate that relationship, right? We're talking about a good healthcare system. What does it do? It facilitates that relationship on a macroscopic level. We're talking about on just the individual between two people, the physician and the patient or the provider and the patient, I should say. Yeah. An analogy that I like is what we're trying to do is provide a Rosetta Stone between physicians and patients. And in a literal sense, sometimes it is about translating uh, physicians speak and how physicians think to patients mm -hmm. so they can better understand and empathize with their with their physicians. Mm -hmm. But the opposite is also true. In a perfect world, back to this perfect world analogy, mm -hmm. physicians would meet the patients where they are. And you and I talk about that. Why is it physicians aren't better about sitting at the patient bedside? Why isn't why are the physicians not better about empathy? Why are the physicians not better at all of these things that we wish the average physician uh, would take more into account? But Instead, what we can do is we can help patients better understand where their physician is coming mm -hmm. from. And so the patient can be empowered to meet the physician where they are. And of course, it's, well, that shouldn't be the case. Shouldn't the, we're, we're past <laughs> what should or shouldn't be true. Right. And we're left with, right. we know that we believe there are these problems. We believe there are these asymmetries of information. And you and I feel equipped to attack them to the best of our ability, to empower patients with the tools to better understand the things that they're seeing from their doctors and where their doctors are coming from and to be better equipped to have productive discussions with those physicians by understanding the frame of mind and frame of reference that the average physician is coming from. Yeah, I agree. I agree. I mean, I, yeah, I wish that it was unnecessary. I think we talk about that a lot. Like it would be nice not to have to have these conversations over and over and over again, not to feel this frustration, this fragmentation, all these problems and hear the stories, not only from the patient side, but from the physician side. I can't tell you how many colleagues I've heard at all levels of training and in practice now that are just frustrated with whatever interaction they had that didn't please them about their patient uh, interaction. And it comes from a good place. It comes from, I want them to be better. I want them to do better. I want them to be successful. However, the thing that I challenge them is like, but do you understand what success looks like to them? And I think that, you know, many would say, yes, of course, you know, it's living longer, it's living healthier, it's not having to take medicines. And that seems reasonable. That's a reasonable assumption. But again, it's an assumption. And until you ask and you act and implore and draw out, I mean, most people aren't going to know 
And that's where a physician can really be helpful that, right? That's where an advocate is so important because it's not just about offering things and assuming what health looks like. It's about asking, but then also drawing out of that person, well, what is it? And they may not know, and you have to be okay with that. Like you have to just be okay with there's going to be uncertainty, just like most physicians are okay that there's uncertainty in diagnosis, that we don't diagnose correctly all the time and that we don't know everything. And so if you can be okay with that, and many physicians aren't, but if you can be okay with that, then you should also be okay with that. Some patients may not know, but your job, your job if you really want to be effective, is to figure that out, to go on that journey with them. That's well said. I'm excited for this project. You and I don't yet have the clearest idea of where the final boundaries will be, but we've got a, an initial jumping in point. We've got this podcast, which we are specifically wanting to target. And then we've got these medical seminars that we're planning to do with patients with specific chronic disease. We focused on heart failure. We focused on chronic kidney disease as these two points where these patients have complicated illnesses. Often they have other comorbidities, other issues that are propping up and these patients probably need help translating in between their various specialists with their primary care physician. So, so hoping to go deep with these particular patients and advocating for them and helping them advocate for themselves. And then we're also hoping to put out and planning to put out these free resources mm -hmm. just to help the average person. I think what you and I have said is if we can help one person better advocate for themselves, that's a job well done. If you want to check out what we've got in the initial slate, you can visit us at translateyourdoctor.com. That's where we're going to put the repository of information. We've got what I would call the beta version of the website up there right now. And then the plan is hopefully weekly to release these podcasts, which will go, again, season one will go into a particular topic around this concept of advocacy and where these breakdowns are and what the average patient can do to help with these breakdowns that they might be having with their physicians, with their care team to help them manage their whatever life-altering illness they're dealing with. Anything else you'd add with that, Trey? I don't think so. My mind's buzzing. I'm just like kind of going through all that because, yeah, I think that there's there's so many things we could talk about, but I like this sense that we're aiming for, which is this season is really looking to give, introduce this theme, because it might be obvious to some, it might not. And so either way, it's important to bring everyone along kind of the same path and then give very specific, I wouldn't call them tips necessarily, but just things to consider, ways to improve your relationship with your physician and hopefully that helps vice versa, right? The physician feel like they're improving their relationship with the patient because that's just speaking from being a doctor, like that's what I look for all the time. I really do want to please my patients because I want them to be better, but it also just feels good to have a great relationship. And I think most people would agree to that. So if our season can really address, this is a problem, right? That's hopefully what we've talked about today, that this is a problem further convince people of that and then say like, well, here are some solutions that people can try. Yeah, I'm excited. I think it's going to be really interesting. I'm looking forward to the feedback that we get from patients and seeing how we can expand on this idea, this theme of translating your doctor and advocating for patients and finding different ways to, to dig into this and help the average person. If you enjoyed this initial episode, subscribe via whatever um, podcast subscription platform tool that you're using. We'll catch up with you next week. Looking forward to it. Thank you, Trey.
Yeah. Thanks, Patrick.